0: Amotilek in harets, We give thanks to God for bread Our voices rise in song together As our joyful prayer is said Baruch HaTadonai Eloheinu a amen blessed art thou lord our god king of the universe who brings forth bread from out of the earth amen baruchata adonai elohenu melech haolam bore pre Hagafen, amen blessed art thou lord our god king of the universe who creates the fruit of the vine? Amen. <laughs> Shinatan Torah Torah, Wora Baruch Shinatan Torah to Wora Lam O Shabbat
1: Shalom Good to see everyone. If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles now to the book of Leviticus. In the Hebrew, this book is entitled Vayikra, and Vayikra comes from the words, Then the Lord called, and he called is Vayikra. Uh, Before we get any farther into it, there is a very powerful teaching uh, about the word Vayikra. Uh, that it speaks to the whole issue of how uh, people are called of the Lord. When, when the Lord calls someone to do a task, uh, these are certain truths associated with it. In the actual Hebrew, in a Torah scroll, at the word Vayikra, the last letter of that word is the letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the scribes purposely write that letter, olive, small. So as you read the word Vayikra, everything's going fine, and all of a sudden the last letter is made tiny or very small as compared to the rest of the word. The letter olive means strength. So what are the scribes trying to suggest that is a teaching to us about the letter that means strength being made small? Well, it is this truth about being called of God. If you are called of God, you, you don't do it in your strength. You use the strength of God. And so to make room for the strength of God to occupy you, to lead you in your call, your strength has to be made small. You, you're, you diminish so that he becomes great. Uh, if you remember, uh, John the Baptist spoke of his ministry in this same way. I must become weak so that he will become strong. In other words, I'm, I'm here to minister, but very soon I'll be made small so that he might be made large as a forerunner to it. And all uh, anyone who's called of the Lord to do service uh, for the Lord's kingdom, it's not done in the power of their personality. It's not done because they're a bigger than life individual. It's done because they humble themselves before God, become small before God, so that God's strength can become powerful uh, within them. Uh, The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 explained to the Corinthians that he did not come in his speech and his preaching in the power of men. But rather, it was a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was more powerful than he was. And he was basically saying, I don't have the skills to do what you saw that happened as the Lord used me for it. With the principle in mind, verse 5, that your faith should not be in in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so all those who would serve the Lord, be called of the Lord, has to do so in the strength of the Lord, not within the wisdom of men or within the the capabilities of men. This is also true of leaders. Good leaders have to have an incredible measure of humility. Uh, A leader who has no humility will ultimately make a fool of himself and will mislead uh, for it. One of the problems that we have in uh, how we elect our leaders, it's mostly based on their ego and uh, the power of their personality as opposed to being anointed or called of God to be the leader of the people, and that's where the the mistakes uh, come in. So that's just a quick reading. That's a scribal teaching as we begin the book of Leviticus. So let's put Leviticus in context with what we've been seeing in the previous Sabbaths in the previous several sabbaths we've been talking about the tabernacle the building of the tent of meeting where the lord came and took up he dwelt among the people so now that we have this and the lord's presence is now with us what's supposed to happen with it what what do we do with this tabernacle well one of the major things is the temple service or the service that's done in that tabernacle, how we come and worship, how we come and do business with God. And so that's what this book begins. It begins with instructions for Aaron, for his sons, for the priests. This is how you will conduct the service. This is how you will represent men coming before God to do business with God. And he begins right off the bat by explaining uh, this business of sacrifices and the laws concerning sacrifices. Let me read to you now, beginning at verse uh, 1 of Leviticus 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect, he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And he shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood. And sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the suet, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar." It's entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. The priest shall offer up in smoke, all of it on the altar, for a burnt offering an offering of fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Then he goes on to explain the same offering, instead if it's a bull, how it will be a sheep. And then he goes even further, if it's a goat, or even a poor man's offering, a turtle dove, a bird. For this kind of offering. Now, before we get into and get enmeshed into all the details of how these different sacrifices were to be presented and the priestly duties on how to do these sacrifices, we need to really step back and ask ourselves the questions why do we have sacrifices? Why, why, does, why did God call for us to do this kind of ceremony? Because quite honestly, today, brethren, we don't do that, do we? And the reason why we don't is we don't have priests anymore. We don't have an altar in Jerusalem anymore. And, and the law goes on to specify this is only to be done at the temple in the place where God has placed his name. In the case of the tabernacle that traveled in the wilderness until it made it to Jerusalem and the temple, permanent temple, was affixed there. So we have to ask ourselves, how in the world does all of this fit in? This has been a major quandary for my Jewish brethren and for Judaism. For them, uh, in Judaism made perfect sense while they had Jerusalem in the temple. But as soon as the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and the years that followed after that, Judaism quite did, didn't quite know what to do with themselves. They really didn't know, well, what do we do now? We have no high priest, we have no Kohen, we have no sacrificial system. How, how do we do business with God? How do we worship God properly and, and, and things like that? And what developed within Judaism... And followed thereafter was that it had to be more of a mental thing that the worship of God was of sincerity of the heart and mental understanding the intellect the decision toward God and so they did they just didn't know what to do with all of these prior instructions with regard to this this question for Christians uh, became uh, actually a very convenient thing for them. Um, Christianity, following suit, decided, well, we'll just set up a whole new system. And so they decided to treat the church to be like a portable temple. And oh, by the way, they decided, let's form a priesthood. And they did. They formed a priesthood under the auspices of claiming under the order of Melchizedek of the Messiah. And and then, of course, as you know, church history, Protestants broke away from them because of the unruliness and the corruption of within that leadership. And uh, to where today, we, we still don't have a very clear picture uh, about what was the purpose of these things, what was God really purposing, and are we anywhere close to doing the things that God really wanted us to do? But, for most of us theologians today, and for the average believer, we, we look back at this, especially we messianics that are turning back to the Torah, we read these instructions and we go, oh my goodness, how would I ever keep this? How, how What's this mean to me? What What's the real meaning behind that? So before we go any further into this book, I want to address why in the world did God set up this sacrificial system and to understand that a little bit, I'm going to go back and refer to various teachers at various times that have offered their explanation and uh, their, their rationale for what this teaching is about and why we have it. And I'm going to give you a range both of teaching from the, from the Jewish perspective as well as from the Christian perspective. So we kind of put this in context as to where we're at today And once we've done that, then we're going to ask the question, well, how should we be dealing with this subject? Uh, As I mentioned to you before, when the temple was destroyed and the Jews began to be expelled, you know, the whole temple system, the whole temple worship thing just collapsed. And for many generations, uh, Jews just didn't know what to do. I mean, the temple was gone. The priesthood was scattered. uh, There was no way to sort it out. But as the Pharisaic tradition turned into rabbinical teaching, rabbinical Judaism had to come up with some kind of answers for this. I mean, they're the ones that advocate the teaching of the Torah. This is part of the Torah. They've got to come up with some kind of explanation or answer for this. And interestingly enough, they never really began to address it until about, oh, 1200 A.D., so we went this whole period of time from 70 A.D. Over a thousand years, Judaism just couldn't figure out a way to deal with this. And the man's name is Moses Maimonides. And he was a rabbi, a philosopher, doctor who lived in Egypt at about 1200 A.D. He's the guy who wrote a very famous book called The Guide for, to the Perplexed. And he helped disciple some other rabbis under his tutelage. And he's the guy who actually codified what we call Jewish law today. He wrote the tenets of the religion of Judaism. So right off the bat, one of the things I want to tell you about is that Judaism didn't begin way back with Moses. Judaism that we see today began at about 1200 AD by Moses Maimonides. And when he went to address this subject, here's basically the gist of his argument. He said, the reason why God uh, used the tabernacle and this priestly system and these sacrifices was because uh, essentially the ancient peoples, our fathers, they had been associated with all the other ancient peoples, and all the other ancient peoples used to do this only to idols. They used to sacrifice animals to idols. And that the ancients, they picked up on this practice as a form of worship. And that uh, when they came out of Egypt, the God knew that you couldn't just immediately go to the direct things that God wanted to do. Uh, and by the way, I've shared with you the part of the argument about the whole reason why the tabernacle was built was because God really wanted to build a tabernacle in our hearts, but we weren't ready for it. And so they give that argument. Well, also part of the argument goes on to say that because we'd been part of the um, the idolatrous cults with their sacrifices that that God basically was kind of weaning us off of it and leading us uh, away from idolatry and learning more of the eternal things of the Lord and, and the true righteousness of the heart and, and things like this. this is what Moses Maimonides argues. And uh, he's really not in favor of sacrifices at all. And Judaism today Rabbinical Judaism today, when you mention the subject of sacrifices, those that are under the influence of his teaching, they'll turn up their nose immediately and say, oh, I don't want to have no temple again. I don't want to be slaying lambs and goats and so forth before God. You wouldn't believe it, but there's Jews who follow Torah. The whole idea of doing this is disgusting to them. And it's because of Moses Maimonides, and he's the guy that helped define Judaism on this. And he goes, and he says that the reason why God even had this was because, uh, well, you know, we were so idolatrous in our worship that we had to be weaned off of it. And he goes into saying, for example, uh, the Egyptians uh, worshipped Taurus, the bull, and Ares, uh, the sheep, the goat. And by slaying those things that God was making his mark to say, not like the Egyptians, you will will be a people unto me. And he's trying to use that as a kind of a, in other words, there's kind of a, a silver lining in this dumb teaching. And that's the way he comes off. Literally, he diminishes what the scripture says and literally argues with getting into the details of wanting to know about this sacrificial system. Now, there was a counterpart to Moses Maimonides. There's a fellow by the name of Nachmanides. He lived about the same time. He lived in the land of Israel. He, too, was a rabbi, and he took issue with Moses Maimonides, and he said, that's just not correct. And part of the argument that he made was, if you're saying, Moses, that the reason why God did this was to wean us away from idols, I would remind you, that when Noah came off the ark after God judged the whole world and took out the whole world, and there's no more idolaters left in the world, then why did Noah immediately start offering up gifts and sacrifices you know, to the Lord? I mean, if this thing was to get rid of all the idolatrous practices, why didn't he do it with Noah when he judged the whole world the first time? That argument doesn't seem to hold water. He went back further to the story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel both had altars. They both brought gifts to the Lord, whereas sacrifices were considered gifts to God And it wasn't, and and it was their highest form of worship to present a gift of expression of love and adoration toward the Lord, and how that's a central story in the story of mankind, how we came to be. So basically, shoots holes in the whole motivation and rationale behind Maimonides saying why God had sacrifices. By the way, I concur with the argument that Maimonides makes against Moses Maimonides. Um, But then he went uh, a little bit further, and he said, well, if if, if it's not what Moses Maimonides said, well, then what what is its purpose? And he proceeded to try to explain, well, when a person comes, um, then they're putting forth their heart, their desire before the Lord. In fact, he He equates that when a person would come and bring a sacrifice and he would lay his hands on it, he would put the burden of his life on the sacrifice and allow that sacrifice now to represent him. And that when it was slain, its blood, its life was presented to the altar. It was representation of the person bringing the sacrifice. It was really their life that was being presented. When they took the entrails and the organs, they were taking the vital organs of your life, of your body. They were presenting those to the Lord, giving those to the Lord. Finally, when they skinned it and parsed it and put it upon to make it a soothing aroma before the Lord, that you were literally offering your whole body uh, you know, for that. And there is some great truth to that. In the next week's portion, we're going to find another scribal mark that actually gives that teaching. And Paul gives that exact same teaching for us in Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord. And that whole verse that Paul's giving is the explanation of the scribal mark in the second portion of Leviticus, which is explaining. How the burnt offering works you know before the Lord so there is some wisdom in that uh, and so forth but it would be far short of understanding what God is really doing here and it is our task as messianic believers to go beyond what the others have tried to say that this is <clears throat> mind you And by the way, what I'm not talking about is I'm not talking about another part of Judaism, which are called the Kabbalists, where they say there's a great mystery involved with this that nobody can know, but there's a great mystery and there's something elusive about it and so forth. Uh, I'm not suggesting that at all. What I'm suggesting to you is the answers are found in the Messiah. This is a subject that's really about the Messiah. You see... There's something rather interesting about all these instructions that Moses gives about this sacrificial system. Uh, It turns out it's for unintentional sins. It's not for willful and defiant sin. If you go to chapter 4 of our portion... It says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. Now, you and I all know there is a world of difference. In a sin, one which has been committed willfully, defiantly, within full intent and premeditation versus one that was simply a mistake. In our dealings with one another, uh, that's one of the crucial things. Let's say a, a friend or somebody who, who um, let's say in his car, has an accident with you and strikes your car, does damage to you, uh, potentially harms you, damages you, and so forth. You, the reason that you're willing to accept the situation and move on with it so quickly is because you quickly make an assessment, well, he didn't mean to do that. That was unintentional on his part. That, he, didn't, he didn't plan to do that. He was dumb. He was dumb he he made a mistake he he you know and and we we understand that it was not intentionally done and these sacrifices being spoken of here in the first portions of Leviticus they're all for nobody intended to do this but this is a mistake that took place this is something that wasn't quite right the sin offering, the guilt offering being expressed here, is a, it, it was never intentional. It was just, it, it accidentally happened. The others, the burnt offering, are gifts to make a gift to the Lord. Uh, if you stop and think about it, let's talk about the gift thing for a moment. We're talking about the king of the universe. What, what are you going to get him for a gift? A gift certificate from Bed Bath & Beyond? How about one of those gift cards from Target? Do you think that would be a great gift for the Lord? You know, he, he, he owns the cattle on a thousand years. He owns the whole planet. I mean, you know, what what are you, what are you going to give to him as a gift that has any meaning or value or whatever? Well, the Lord has specified to, if you want to bring a gift to me, this is what you'll bring. And what is very clearly focused in all of the instructions, if I were to summarize all the instructions, he, he's really not so much interested in... In the thing you brought, although there are some standards for it, he's much more interested in where's your heart at? What's the intent of your heart to give the gift? Let me make a, a statement of principle to you that comes from the sacrificial system, which is true throughout all of the world, and it's a spiritual law. The value of the gift is determined by the giver not by the person who receives it. The person who desired this gift greatly, when they get the gift, of course they're going to jump up and down and say, hey, this is exactly what I wanted, what I always hoped I wanted, and, and, and so forth. But the reason why that gift will have such great value is because the person who gave it to them knew that's what would be the delight of that person's heart and life. And they purposed They purposed to do that which would be delightful for them. And they expended of their resources, their time for the benefit to to be to the joy of that other person. The same can be for a a silly gift. Matter of fact, they talk about this as one of the differences between men and women. And parent, you see this example in parents, you know, a little kid. Uh, finds two sticks in the mud in the curb street and he gets a, an old rusty nail and he gets a hammer and then he hooks the two he hounds them together he makes the two sticks stick together he walks in the house he sees his mother and he says hey mom look what I made for you now mom you, you wells up in tears bends down oh honey thank you for making that for me that's so sweet of you to do that she, all she does is see the heart the heart of the kid who wanted to do it. Now take the same gift, walk into the living room where Dad's sitting on the recliner and say, Hey Dad, guess what I made for you? He's going to take one look at that and they say, What are those two sticks out of the street? Get that out of the house, that's filthy. Going you know. See the difference. Okay. And and what I'm saying to you is this it's it's the person who's presenting the gift that really determines the value of the gift. Now let me go a step further. I'm going to fast forward to our faith. Who really determines the value of the gift that's been given to us called the Son of God? Us. Now we got the benefit of the forgiveness of sins. We have the benefit of being passed from death to life. I mean, we we're gonna make it into the kingdom on the basis of this gift of eternal life that he's given to us, we will surely value it greatly. But is that the great value of the gift? Or is the great value of the gift that the Father, who loved us while we were yet sinners, sent him down to be that salvation and deliverance and forgiveness for us? I submit to you, that the, per- the person who made the gift valuable was the giver, not us. That's who determined the real value. And in fact, the value of that particular gift I'm talking about far exceeds you and your sins and your life. Because that gift is so powerful, it covers the sins of all the people of the world. Be it way beyond you. The-, the value of that gift is far exceedingly greater than all of the profit of the world and everything the world could possibly have done. Where do we get the teaching to understand this? Where where do we get the base instruction so that we can understand the value of a gift or that we can understand this exchange thing for how we forgive when somebody makes a mistake against one of us? It comes from the sacrificial system. The way God sets up the rules of the sacrificial system, the substitutionary system, literally serves as the very basis of how we conduct business with one another and how God conducts business with us. Let's go back to the example of the fellow you had the car accident with. Now let's change that the guy who ran into your car and injured you, let's change that there was some malice on his part. It could have been anger against you. And it wasn't just an accident. He kind of did want to smack you with his car. And that he was more than willing to cause harm to you. How quickly would you forgive that? How quickly would you dismiss that? Would you, would you immediately be in a frame of mind to say, oh, no problem. Let's You go ahead and proceed your way. I'll proceed my way. Hey, have a great day. Uh-uh. What if he was so flagrant in his disregard for the laws of the land, so flagrant in his disregard for just basic decency in life that he was drunk as a skunk when he drove his car into you? Would you be so quick to forgive and say, oh, it was just an accident? Was it that was... Really unintentional, so I'm going to be more than happy to have a simple exchange with you and it will be done. Mm-mm. See, that's a different deal. Let me tell you what the law teaches about when somebody does willful, defiant sin against God. It says there is no bull to bring. There's no goat for you to bring. There's no sacrifice for you to present to the priest and so forth. The law says you deserve death. You willfully, defiantly sin. You deserve death. Your life should be taken away from you. And by the way, there's no substitution for you that you can bring. That's what the law teaches. If you sin against another man willfully, intentionally, you stole from him, you misrepresented yourself, you extorted him, you lied to him so you could get an advantage on him and so forth, the law says, yeah, there are some sacrifices that you can bring for that, but you have to make amends with him first before you can bring the sacrifices to the Lord. And oh, by the way, when you get done, you're going to pay a little bit more than what you did. You steal something, you're going to pay double. You did something out of bad faith with him, you're going to add one-fifth to it. If you happen to steal a sheep, you're going to give him four sheep back. If you slew the sheep, sold it, or ate it, you're going to give him five sheep. You're going to pay dearly, you know, with the idea in mind that there's a punitive damage to teach you, don't do that again. Now, that's what the law goes into and speaks to. But let's go back to the more fundamental issue of this sacrificial system, this substitutionary system, uh, because... um, All of us have at some time or other in our lives, we have willfully and defiantly sinned against God. Out of our mouth, we have blasphemed him. Our feet have been quick to run to evil and wrongdoing. We have disregarded what the Lord has said, literally spoken against what the Lord has said, defiantly rebelled against his authority as god almighty i mean the list goes on you can take any of the ten commandments when we go down through the list and you can find that we have violated against the lord willfully and defiantly at some time in our life now how do we reconcile that how do we bring about resolution to that how do we get atonement with the lord how do we get back to being one with the lord completely reconciled based on those things Because the procedures that are given here that Moses gives us for the priest, there is no sacrifice for you to come and bring and do that. However, there was another sacrifice way before the Torah was ever explained to us or given to us. There was another sacrifice that has been explained to us. And that is the sacrifice, the Lamb of God sacrifice that we learned at the Passover. And even before that, Abraham, our father, specifically spoke of it and promised it when he took Isaac up to make sacrifice of him. God instructed both Abraham and Isaac about another sacrifice that God would be providing. And that was the promise that Abraham gave to Isaac when he said, Father, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, The Lord will provide for himself the lamb in that place. And thus we get the phrase, The lamb of God. The lamb that is brought by God that will be the acceptable sacrifice that will pass us from death to life. And in the case of the Passover in Egypt, that's exactly what it illustrated. They took the blood of a lamb, put it over the doorposts, the lintel of the door, so that the people would understand that God, because of that, God would pass over them and death would not come to their house. Death did come to the houses where there was no Passover lamb. And when the Messiah came, he came explaining that he had been sent by the Father to do this thing for us. Now, the irony of it is that uh, the religious leaders of the day couldn't quite figure out how does that work? What what is that? why, Why would they be confused about this? Well, I can tell you why. Because they were confused about these sacrifices and what were the purposes of these that were given in Leviticus by Moses. The people, in the days when the temple was built, the people got into a religious routine about these. The priesthood and the temple system became a business and uh, this is what we got to do. Okay, we do it. You know, we just we kind of just mindlessly did this, did it out of rote routine, uh, and to the point where it just lost all meaning and semblance, and it was just we just went through the motions of doing it. And finally, the prophets, you know, started crying out to the people and says, "The Lord is sick of your sacrifices." The Lord does not want, he doesn't want to smell the fragrance of your sweet incense anymore. Was it because God wanted to change what he had set up with Moses? Absolutely not. It's because their hearts were completely detached from the worship of the Lord. Completely detached. Uh, The irony of that situation then strikes me because of the situation we have today today a lot of our brethren today who proclaim the Messiah to be our savior the lamb of god sacrifice we we too are kind of like the ancient people a lot of our faith is turned into a rote routine well we get up and we go to church on sunday uh, of course we have the we have the family squabble in the car before we get to the church on sunday that's part of the routine then we go to Sunday school, then we hear the preacher preach, and then we go home, and then we eat roast preacher, you know, roast the preacher. We didn't like what he had to say. Sometimes we go back to the Sunday night service. Sometimes we go to the Wednesday night service. It all depends on whether or not we're part of any sort of club in the church or part of the choir or whatever the case may be. And it's just getting, it turns into a routine, and year after year after year, people do this until they grow old. And if you've been doing it for long enough, you get to use the church when your daughter gets married. And you get to use the facility for your funeral. Is, is that it? That's the faith? That, that's what Yeshua came for? So that we might have life and live it more abundantly? That, that, that's all there is to it? The reason why there's not much more to it is because the whole thing's turned into a rote routine. No substance anymore, no life to it anymore. It doesn't mean anything. That's the same thing that happened to my Jewish brethren in the temple service. They even went further. They worked it down to a system where even the priest didn't come and serve anymore. They'd hire other people to stand in for him, and the, the other people would stand in for the priest, and so the priest didn't even have to come and do the service anymore. It was a business. When Yeshua came through the temple, you remember he He saw the money changers, you know, he went through wrecking the tables of them and so forth. You turn this place into a business instead of a place of prayer for the nations to come. Um, These things here sound very religious. Uh, There's a lot of ritual, a lot of routine to them. Moses is laying out specific instructions on how they'll be presented, how they'll be done. And we're trying to follow after that exact procedure. The, um, how many of you have, by chance, ever been around a Greek Orthodox church or have been members of a Greek Orthodox church? If you want to see routine that is taken to the T, okay just go to a Greek Orthodox church and see how the priests and the aides and so forth, they do their little worship service. Even the way they lay the napkin on the cup has to be done a certain way. The way they touch the wafer for the communion service has to be done a certain... In other words, they thought the the epitome of the worship was to do this great routine. And by the way... Um, the priests were charged by God to establish the altar service. And what we see here, described here in Leviticus did, in fact, develop into a whole assortment of many other procedures. Procedures to including how you bring wood and fuel in. What do you do with salt? How do you take the ashes out of the temple? What, how do you prepare the high priest before he gets ready to do the service he's done? What is this chamber for? How do we bake the bread? What's the right way to bake the bread? What's the right way to make the incense? How do you present the incense on the golden altar? There was a lot of detailed procedures that had to be worked out. But I think the reason why Moses didn't give us all that detail in here, I think the reason why he gave it because that's not the essence of what we're doing here. Those are some things that need to be done. And Paul summarizes it to us this way in the New Covenant. He says, when we come to worship the Lord, we gather assemble and so forth, just let everything be done decently and in order. One has a psalm, one has a teaching, one has a prayer, whatever, that's fine. Just let everything be done decently and in order. Let it be dignified. Let it be honoring. Let it be clear so all the people can understand and can join in. Let's not make it chaos and let's not get so wound around the axle on the details that we lose the essence of what we're doing. That we simply came to worship the Lord. Let me go back again to the opening words of Moses' instruction. I want you to examine, because this is a little bit of a checklist of what the Lord is asking for us in the worship that we come before him. When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord. Now, mind you, this is the Torah. You know, the, the, this was given to Israel. Did it say, when a native born comes to you? Does it say, when any Jew brings an offering? Does it specifically hone in on a particular segment or population of the world? No. The, the statement right off the bat, it says, any man. Whenever I hear... Some Christian pastor teacher thing says, well, all of this was for the Jews. That's that's not what this says. These are the procedures for any man who wants to present an offering to the Lord. It's not exclusive to just those who are of Jewish background." Any person who loves the Lord and wants to worship the Lord and wants to present a gift to the Lord, any person, I don't care what nation you come from, I don't care who you are, where you come, if that's your intent and your desire to come for the Lord, these are the procedures for you. So right off the bat, let's dismiss the idea that these procedures are strictly for Israel and somehow the church doesn't have these. The whole premise that the church has one set of rules and Israel has another set of rules is false. It begins first right here. These are rules and procedures and commandments for any man, any person. It continues. When any man brings you an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or from the flock. Now, if it's from the herd and from the flock, that means that somebody had to make an investment here. Somebody had the farm. Either I had to, either it's from my flock, from my herd, or I had to go to a man who had a herd and a flock and I had to negotiate with him for the value he had put into that that member of his herd or flock, I have to purchase that from him. So, I, because, so it, it needs to come from a herd and a flock. In other words, this animal, you didn't just happen to run into this animal and find it. It had to come because somebody had made an investment in this animal to grow it, nurture it, take care of it. So, for example, what it's saying is if uh, I was on my way to Jerusalem and uh, all of a sudden I just walked along and lo and behold, there was a goat. Along the way. Hey, I got to go. Let me throw a rope on it. We'll take that and we'll use that for my sacrifice. That would be a totally unacceptable sacrifice to the Lord. That's the same thing as if you were driving with your truck. And you smacked a deer. And you killed it. And it's roadkill. No, it's not acceptable as food. It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable to the Lord, not acceptable to you. Things that are alive and have value. Remember, the value of the gift is very important. The, um, he goes on to say it's got to come from the herd of the flock. If this is going to be a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it male without defect. Okay, it has to be a male, can't be a female to be a burnt offering. Furthermore, when it says it's without defect, you can't go out to your herd and you're looking around and you say, well, I've got several male uh, goats here. Uh, by the way, that's kind of the weakest one over there. Let's pick that one, you know, because I don't really want the weak ones in my flock. We'll use that as a gift to the Lord. Uh-uh. Don't even think the thought. Well, actually, that one got wounded. You know, he, he got... Uh, his leg was broken, and it's on the me it 's on the mend right now let's let's offer that one uh-uh without defect in fact, the really good gift will you go out and you select the strongest the best that you have that is the one that is the acceptable gift. Remember my premise about the the giver is the one who gives the value to it. The Lord is saying, if you have something that is defective and you know it's defective, you didn't give me a gift at all. You gave me something defective. What does that reflect about your heart? Lousy things, terrible things about your intention toward the Lord. Why should He accept that? Have you ever uh, Have you ever gotten a gift from a friend? <laughs> uh, In fact, I saw this happen, this last Sukkot. Um, There's a man who came to Sukkot, and he wanted to make a peace offering with a brother. He knew the brother wasn't, they weren't real happy with each other, but he wanted to make a peace offering, and so he greeted him in the name of the Lord, just as the feast was starting. He said, brother, I don't want to be at odds with you, we're here to worship the Lord, he said, I brought, you a, um, I brought you a gift and pulled out this nice bottle of wine. And so he gave the bottle of wine to to this brother. And he said, this, my apologies to you. And by the way, here's a gift, of friendship that I want to give to you. Well, I didn't know anything of that that had happened. I just had this second brother. He comes up to me, oh... By the end of the first day of the feast, and he says, Monty, I have a gift for you. And he gives me a bottle of wine. Then later on, I talked to the first brother. And the first brother says to me, He says, Yeah, I tried to make amends with uh, the brother over there, and I gave him a bottle of wine. I said, Really? You gave him a bottle of wine? I said, What kind of wine was it? He says, Oh, it's one of his favorites. It was, it's uh, one of those ones he really likes. I said, really? I said, well, later on that day, he came and gave me a gift and gave me a bottle of wine that's the same thing. And we kind of put it together that he gave away the gift that had been given to him and he he was giving it to me. You know what I did with that bottle of wine? I popped it open and I poured it out. I didn't drink it. Because the gift that was given to me, he had devalued. He held that bottle of wine in as part of the, his contempt toward the first brother. You think I'm going to drink this bottle of wine with joy, knowing that that's what's the meaning behind this bottle of wine? Mm-hmm. Well, you think the Lord likes getting a gift from us because you've got an issue with another brother and in spite you do something and then you come up to the Lord and say, Oh, I got something good for you, Lord and it's born out of spite and envy toward another brother? You think that's acceptable to the Lord? It is not. In fact, there's a specific rule Yeshua specifically taught. If you have aught with your brother, and you want to come and bring a gift to the Lord, alms to the Lord, you don't give it to the Lord. You go solve the problem with your brother first, then you can come back and give your gift to the Lord. Don't do it the other way around. And in the same way that I felt about the gift of the bottle of wine, knowing what had taken place, I can assure you the Lord every bit as much has the same feeling. And if the same thing had been done with you, it would have been distasteful for you to receive such a gift under such conditions. It wouldn't be a gift at all. In fact, you'd hold it in disregard about it's reflective of, this person and kind of disgusting to tell you the truth that would be terrible for you to come and present a gift to the Lord and the Lord held it and was disgusted with it wouldn't it that would not be good where do we learn these things how do we learn about how to do that it's from these instructions these instructions go on and tell you the, the right way to do it the right way the Lord wants to receive it the right way to give a gift The right way to express yourself, how the priests are to handle it in a particular way. Look, let's take the point of view of the priest. They're receiving this instruction. What are the priests understanding? We have a holy God over here, and we have the servants of God, and he wants to make his gift. And God has said, help him so that he can make his gift acceptable to me. Even though the man doesn't know how to make himself acceptable to the Lord, the priest is there for that purpose. By the way, there's one person, an intermediary, between God and all of men. And his purpose is to make us acceptable to God. You and I don't have the capacity to do it. We're dumb. We're offensive. We, we cast off an offensive odor to the Lord. You know, it, it, we're disgusting. We're, we're ignorant of the things of God and his kingdom. So what does the Lord do? He says, I'll put an intermediary. I'll put a priest between you so that your gifts will be acceptable. Now, I'll give them the standards. They'll carry it out so that you will be acceptable to me. So that your substitutionary thing can come and be received with the intent that your heart had to bring me a gift. All of these things are presented on a table called an altar. The altar that God establishes is this table where he does business with man. And this is a very holy table. These are the things of God. Anything that comes on this table, it belongs to the Lord. It's set apart from the world. It's it's strictly for the business of doing with God. We'll find out that there's some particular sacrifices that are done every day by the priests for this table. We call them the daily sacrifices. And each morning, the priests will get up and they will do certain sacrifices for the Lord that will be on this table. So that from that moment on, called the morning sacrifice, any man who wants to come and do business, on the Lord's table, there is wine, there is bread, and there is meat already present. So that the Lord can show hospitality for anyone who's bringing a gift. You're not bringing something to the Lord that he doesn't have at all. He already has it. You're just bringing something that can be adding to what God already has. And of course, if you're going to add to the things, then obviously there's some standards to what you can add to. You can't bring something that's offensive to the table. You can't bring something that's offensive to what is already on the table. By the way, you have those same rules in your house. When you invite a guest to come over to your house, most guests will say it's going to come over for a meal or dinner or whatever. Most guests will say, well, what can I bring? Let me tell you what is the proper answer for that. Whatever the homeowner specifically specifies, that is all that will be acceptable. So if they say, well, you can bring a dessert. Or why don't you bring some bread? That's what you need to bring. You don't decide to change the menu for the host or hostess of the home. You don't decide to bring something of your liking, which is separate from what they did. If, if they've already got dessert prepared and they asked you to bring bread, if you decide to bring an additional dessert and say, well, I really like this dessert, and you upstage the dessert that was already done by the hostess, let me just tell you something right now. You are going to be held in contempt and disdain in that house. Now, the rules of our own houses, of how we treat guests and so forth, it's no different for the house of the Lord. It's no different for his table. These are not difficult things to understand. This isn't just religiosity, you know, on steroids, this stuff we're reading in Leviticus. It's basic stuff that has to do with life and how we get along with one another. Only this is instructions. How do we get along with God? How do we come to his house? And how do we join at his table? These are the instructions. And the Lord even instituted the priesthood to assist us and to coach us and, and teach us and so, so that we could do it right and proper. The Messiah came and did a whole bunch of this for us. In fact, he pretty much set the table for us. He got all the right stuff. Matter of fact, with him, all we have to do is basically just come and he's provided everything for us to join the table of the Lord. That table we call the Passover table. We're invited to that table to be with him. As we come um, this year to observe the Passover, um, the, the picture of the, of the special meal The Seder. We have a whole series of cups and there's an order to things. We call it the Seder. There's an order to how things are going to be done. It is no more elaborate. It's no more religious or ritual than if you had come to the temple in Jerusalem to worship the Lord one day and to bring your sacrifices there. And there would have been an order that the priest would have followed that you would have joined in. But to go contrary to that order, to do something different than what the Lord has specified, would be, of course, a great offense to his table. And so we're instructed on the rules of his table. In years past, I've uh, always referred to some of these rules of the table uh, date back to your grandmother's. I know it was my grandmother that said, don't you ever put your elbows on my table. It was my grandmother who said, don't you even think about coming to the dinner table, my table, until you've washed your hands first. Did you know the priests have to wash their hands first before they can work at the table of the Lord? And did you know that there's a proper way to present things? You have to stand on the side of the altar at a certain place of the altar, on a certain east side or north side to offer your gift. You can't go on the other side or around the other way or whatever. There's a proper way even that you come to the table. In my house, um, we actually designate the seats of where the guests will sit. If some dude comes in and is presumptively just decides to plop down in my seat, it's going to be embarrassing for him. It's going to be really embarrassing because he's presumptive. He's a guest. There's rules to the table. Wait for the host or hostess to direct you to your proper place at the table. It will be on this side, not that one. And those who are gracious guests, those who understand the table protocol, would never act so presumptuously as to do such a thing. But somebody who's ignorant would, wouldn't they? Well... The Lord does not want us to be ignorant about his table. He wants us to be instructed to understand how to come. He wants uh, us to understand the substitutionary system that he's built. How to substitute for an unintentional sin, a mistake. How do you handle that? What's the proper way to do that? For intentional ones, he wants us to understand we can't bring a sacrifice for that. God has to do that one. And so that we can accept that sacrifice just as easily as we would have brought one for ourselves. That it's the same protocol that we graciously accept the gift, you know, it's been given to us. And we understand the business that's being done at the table, and we wait for the Lord for Him to do what He wants to do at His table, the way He wants to do it at His table, and we're gracious and we're thankful and we accept what He does. Then we get the benefit of the table. Then we get the benefit of the substitution. Then we get all the good things that comes from the table and from being in the house of the Lord. Now for those who don't want to know about the house of the Lord, those that don't want to come and do business at the table of the Lord, those that Ah, uh, this is religious stuff. I don't know. I don't need to know any of this. I'm see. I'm smarter than Moses and God on how to really work out a relations with Him. You know. So I see. I've got it all figured out. You know. I accepted the Messiah. I believe in Him, and uh, I'm haughty and I'm full of ego and I'm I'm just eating myself up from the inside out because I'm such an idiot. <laughs> then you'll get the blessings accorded to that, or the curses as may be in that situation. Much for us to learn from the book of Leviticus and about the table rules for us, but I wanted to address why in the world would God have a sacrificial system? It wasn't so that we could be weaned away from idols. It's so that we could see that God can set up a substitutionary system for us in particular If we can understand the sacrificial system of how God deals with sin and mistakes, then we can understand the wonderful thing that the Messiah has done for us in dealing with our sin and our mistakes that he's done for us. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Leviticus. And as we begin the study of the altar and the different sacrifices that you specify for Moses, help us to understand the altar service, the temple service, Lord, Help us to understand why did you build a tabernacle? Why did you want to dwell among us? Why, why do we have all of these things? And how do we approach you correctly and appropriately? How do we make gifts to you that are acceptable to you, Lord? It is our desire, Lord, to draw near to you, to understand you better, and to help us to stand uprightly and take the place that you provided for us in your kingdom that we might fully partake of your kingdom as you purpose and planned for us. Let us not just sink into our ignorance and our apathy and ignore such important things as the rules of your table. We ask in Yeshua of Nazareth. Amen.